Well, again, good morning this smoky Sunday morning. As we were worshiping, I was enjoying looking around and seeing upwards of a dozen young faces. And by young, I mean under the age of five or so. And seeing so many of these young children is such a blessing in our church. And I want to encourage the families of these children that your kids are welcome here. This is not a church where we expect everyone to be dead silent and where any little noise is going to throw off the preacher up front. Because if this preacher up front was thrown off by children's noises, he would always be thrown off because he has as many children as the rest of us anyways. So your children are welcome here. Your children are welcome to, even if they're making noises. If you do feel like you need a space, we have the fireside room in the back. If you need a little bit of extra space, and if you need a lot of extra space, or you need some space to nurse, we do have a nursery down at the far corner. But like I said, I just wanted to remind the families here that your kids are welcome, and we're excited that we have so many of these wonderful blessings with us. So as we continue to worship, I ask that you'd turn with me in your Bibles to this morning's scripture reading, which is Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Again, Micah 6, 6 to 8. If anybody doesn't know where Micah is, it's right after Jonah, Old Testament. Micah 6, 6 to 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Would you please come with me to our God in prayer? Our God and our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to accomplish this, that you would help us to come before you and to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with you, that by our actions we might glorify you, and that by the work of your Spirit you might empower us to do so. Lord, you have brought us together here this morning, and we ask that as we worship you, that our hearts and our eyes would be turned towards you. We think of those who are not able to be with us this morning because they are ill. We ask that you would heal them and bring them back to full health quickly, that they might be able to join with us yet again here in person. We pray that they'd be able to worship together with us virtually online. And we pray for all of those who are joining with us online that they would worship, but they would also be encouraged to return to worship together in person. That we would not use that as a, as a crutch to avoid being with the, with the family, but that it would be a useful tool when we cannot be. Lord, we also pray for 
some in our congregation who are waiting for medical diagnoses or results from tests and that kind of thing. Lord, we know the anxiety that that can cause, the worry that that can stir up in our hearts and the specters of what could be. And Lord, we just ask that you would cause us to rest and rely upon you, knowing that no medical diagnosis, no anything is outside of your purview, that you are sovereign and that you are good and none of this catches you by surprise. And Lord, may we rest in knowing that you are good knowing that all things follow your plan. God, it was impossible not to notice this morning the smoke around us, and Lord, we pray for those who are either affected by the wildfires that are going on around our country and also for the firefighters and first responders that are dealing with these, and for the other first responders around our country and around our world that are serving to keep others safe, particularly our brothers and sisters in the faith that are doing so this Sunday morning and aren't able to join with their church communities in worship. We pray that their own home church congregations would be praying for them and supporting them in the midst of their difficult work. And we pray that you would strengthen them to do what you have equipped them to do. We pray for our governments, O Lord, that are making decisions and leading our country. And God, we ask that you would cause them to know you, cause them to follow you and make decisions that would honor and glorify you. And for your people, your church, that we might be able to respect and honor those who you have placed in authority over us, but we may also use the avenues available for us to affect these changes, to come to our elected representatives and remind them of what it is that you have commanded and what it is that you would have us as your people do. And God, we do thank you so much for the families in this church, for each little one that is joining with us here this morning. We thank you in particular for the little one that is, uh, was celebrated yesterday for Bell and Cito's new baby, and that we ask that you would keep Bell safe and baby safe as we look so forward to welcoming this little one into our, into our church. And we pray that we as your people would continue to support the families, that we might be there for them and finding ways to care for them. And we pray that even the little ones who are here this morning and hearing your word, that even now seeds would be being planted, that they might come to know you and place their faith and trust wholly in you. And for our bigger kids, Lord, the students who are returning to universities and high schools and elementary schools in the coming weeks, we ask that you would keep them safe as they do so. Equip them with all good things that they might do your will in where you have placed them. Particularly for the ones going off to university outside of their family's protection and training, Lord, we pray that you would connect them to good churches and good people who are able to continue to encourage them and equip them. 
And Lord, we pray even as they are preparing to go, that you would prepare their hearts and give them an outlook, knowing that you have laid out a path for them and they need to trust in you as they do so. Lord, we thank you for these things. We thank you for your word and the opportunity we have now to spend some time in it. And Lord, we pray that by our time in your word that we would be equipped and encouraged and you would be glorified. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we took a look at two texts that spoke of the church and how it should respond to its leaders, that we would remember and imitate and submit to and obey the leadership in the pursuit of Christ. But this text bookended another discussion entirely that we said we'd come back to. Remember that this book that we call Hebrews is actually a letter to a church or group of churches. And as in any letter, the last kind of section, if any of you have written a handwritten letter, I know that's getting to be a fading skill, but if you've written a handwritten letter, you know that the end of the letter kind of becomes the time to tie up some of the loose ends. Oh, I also want to not forget this and bring that in and deal with any of the remaining issues. And... Our author starts by giving some advice on church leadership, and then this feels like something of a sidebar. So we're going to be starting in verse 9 of Hebrews 13, and I encourage you to flip there, Hebrews 13, starting in verse 9, and we're going to run through to verse 16. So I encourage you to flip there with me, and we will read it together. Again, Hebrews chapter 9, or Hebrews chapter 13, verses 9 to 16. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. But the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So I'm sure that as you read this, this does read a little bit of kind of an aside in the commands about church leadership. But hopefully you also hear how important this is and how much it ties together so much of what is said in the book of Hebrews. Just about everything that he's been getting at from chapter 1 is touched on here. The first point he makes is in, in regard to these strange teachings. There's a general warning here followed by a more pointed one. And... Oftentimes we look and we start to ask, well, what are these strange teachings? What is a strange teaching? 
And the answer to that is remarkably simple. The definition of a strange teaching hasn't changed in 2,000 plus years. A strange teaching is anything, anything that deviates from the commandments and the laws as found in Scripture. If it deviates from God's commandments and scriptures, that would qualify as a strange teaching that we need to avoid. We talked during our time in Hebrews 4 about this passage starting in verse 12 that says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. To connect things a little more clearly with what we talked about last week, it doesn't matter, we talked about leadership, it doesn't matter who your leaders are, their charisma, their apparent gifts, their apparent righteousness, if their teachings deviate from the teachings of Christ, if their teachings deviate from what we find in the Scriptures, then we are to remember, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Flee from the false teachings from him who contradicts or twists Scripture. But then he gets a little bit more specific. If you spent much time in the New Testament, particularly after the Gospels, there's a lot that is said about food. Food sacrificed to idols, prohibited food, foods used in worship at the temple. When questioned regarding food, Jesus responded quite simply. Pharisees came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He went on to explain to his disciples later on, Do you not see that whatever goes into your mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So he makes it pretty clear, but apparently this continued well beyond the crucifixion of Christ because our author states, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Just like Jesus, our author wanted to show the audience something, that it is about far more than just food. Jesus taught that what we eat doesn't defile us, and our author, combating another counter-scriptural teaching, teaches that what we eat doesn't make us righteous. The ritual life, the foods and the festivals, all of the trappings that attended the temple worship was given by God under the Old Covenant. It was required by God for His people pre-Christ, but those things had been expressly done away with in the New Testament and in the New Covenant. Many of us will be familiar with Peter's vision in Acts 10, and that vision was followed by a command, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. 
that and the surrounding passages make clear that these ceremonial food laws were made obsolete in the new covenant. But even for me as a preacher, it would be easy for me to go into a huge long discourse and sermon on food laws, but the focus here in Hebrews is not specifically just on food laws and all of that kind of good stuff, but as always, it is on Christ. It is the grace that is found in knowing Christ as our Lord and Savior that strengthens us. Not by strange teachings, not by eating certain foods and following certain customs. He goes on, starts talking about the fact that there is an altar that those who serve the tent have no right to eat. In the Old Covenant, the priests and only the priests had a God-given right to a portion of the animal sacrifice. That was their inheritance as God's ministers. But our inheritance is so much better. And even these priests at this point are now being judged for this. For those acting as priests before Christ were doing so in faithfulness to God's revelation. But at this point, those who stubbornly continued on, we're doing so in rejection of God's revelation of himself in Christ, choosing instead to worship at the sacrificial altar in the temple. Our altar, what we come to, is Christ, the great high priest who is ministering now today at the right hand of God the Father. Verse 11 details two very important parts about what we know as the Day of Atonement from the Old Covenant. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. That Day of Atonement was the day where the people's sacrifices were dealt with and done away with. But also remember that this whole sacrificial system, every part of it, was custom designed by God. And particularly, it was custom designed by God to point towards Christ. So everything, even in the old covenant sacrificial system, points us towards Christ. When that blood was brought into the holy places, it was brought in to be sprinkled, symbolizing the cleansing from sin and cleansing from unrighteousness. In Leviticus 17.11, we're told, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And that was reiterated by our author in Hebrews 9.22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But we are to be reminded that even that cleansing in the Old Covenant was symbolic. Every sin that was purified by the shed blood of a sacrifice was done so looking forward towards Jesus. For in his divine forbearance, God passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The blood of these sacrifices were brought into the holy places. But the animal that this blood come from 
This animal that gave its life, its end was to be burned outside of the camp. Why outside of the camp? Remember that this sacrifice in view here was on the Day of Atonement, making purification for the sin of God's people, and these animals became unclean, symbolic in their use for taking away the sins of the people. Hopefully that sounds really, really familiar to you. And our author draws the line really clearly. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. There's some symbolism here that's kind of twofold. First, like we've been discussing, Jesus himself became the sacrifice, taking the sin of his people and taking it outside the camp. He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. But there's a second layer here if we peel things back. For if Jesus became sin for us, and we become the righteousness of God, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, then why are we told to go to Jesus outside of the camp? To be outside of the camp all throughout the Old Covenant was to be cut off from God's people. It was to be unclean. It was to be separate and shunned. And yet, we are purified by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and then we are told to go to Christ outside of the camp. Again, it ties back to that vision that we heard about Peter was given in Acts 10. What God has made clean, do not call common. It's about way more than just the ceremonial food laws. It goes on from there. Peter is summoned to the home of Cornelius, a Roman centurion. And he was told by God, accompany the people who summon you without hesitation. And while he's in the company of these Gentiles, he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And summing up, Cornelius said, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And remember that the people receiving this letter in the book of Hebrews were Hebrew Christians, Christ followers. And that meant worshiping alongside men and women from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. It meant going into all the earth, preaching the gospel and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So if they were to be partakers in the sanctifying work of Christ, purchased by the blood of Jesus, then they would have to leave their comfortable cloister of the Jewish religious order and make themselves pariahs to their own people. That often meant becoming an outcast by all friends and family that they knew. They had to be ready to bear the reproach that Christ himself endured, utter rejection by his own people. 
the motivation here was as simple as it was lofty and found in verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Whether first century Hebrew Christians or us today, the motivation is the same. In Hebrews 12, we're told to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew before going to the cross what we too now know, that the things of this earth hold no enduring value. What has enduring value is what is done with eyes fixed upon Jesus and comes from following him wholeheartedly. And the Hebrew Christians at this point, they had a lot of reprogramming to do in coming to follow Christ, not the least of which being the idea they had of kind of a racial superiority is Israel as God's only chosen people. You've spent your entire life being told you are God's chosen people, and then all of a sudden this Jesus shows up, and all of a sudden God's chosen people are all of the people from anywhere in the world who would follow Christ. There's a lot of rewriting to do in your own mental book. The Gentiles were those outside of the camp, and now all of a sudden, the Gentiles who believed in Jesus were now part of God's people. To follow Jesus meant being willing to sacrifice everything else. In Mark 10, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So what does it mean for us to not only willingly but joyously run to Jesus outside of the camp? It is to totally and unreservedly throw ourselves into our state as Christ followers. The Bible is pretty clear that this does not mean roses and sunshine. 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not always going to be a wonderful, happy thing to follow Jesus. It will be difficult. It will be hard. Wherever God places us in whatever situation then and now, we are called to through him then continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The age of that Levitical priesthood for these Hebrew believers had gone and the new covenant priesthood of Christ had come. Christ has become the priest, meaning the mediator between God and man. Christ became the sacrifice, the one whose blood resulted in God and man being made right. He has even become the altar, the place where God and man are reconciled. Hear what 1 Peter 2.5 has to say of Christ's people, his brothers, as Hebrews so often calls us. You yourselves, like living stones, are being up as a spiritual house 
to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We who have given Christ our total allegiance are now sworn into the priesthood of Christ, not acting as the ones who reconcile God and man, for Christ has completed that ministry, but totally sworn to bringing him glory in all that we do. And then we're given some pretty clear action steps. Continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That first one is bound to get us in trouble, for to acknowledge Christ with our lips is to reject what the world holds most dear. The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. To acknowledge the name of Jesus at first glance might seem like an easy thing, but when it comes to acknowledging the name of Jesus in the face of a world that hates the name of Jesus is not going to be an easy thing. The sacrifice of praise is akin to what we read in Psalm 50, 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. We are so incredibly thankful for God's saving grace, for reconciling us to himself when we were still sinners. And ultimately, this forces us to turn our eyes back towards Jesus. We are thankful for what he has accomplished in his incarnation, in his perfect, sinless life, in his sinner's death, his resurrection and his glorification, and what he is still doing in his ministry as our high priest at the right hand of God on high. So we must acknowledge his name. Jesus makes it very clear, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. But we are well aware that simply acknowledging with our lips what we believe is not enough. We must acknowledge with our lips and then follow it up with an action, with a lifestyle that displays what we believe. We acknowledge and then we live accordingly. We do not neglect to do good and to share what we have. And to me, as I was reading this, this seemed awfully close to obeying the great commandments that Jesus laid out. Obeying the direction of Scripture, which is our action of loving the Lord and caring for our neighbors, which is our act of loving others. And repeatedly throughout Hebrews, we keep coming back to these two great commandments because Jesus told us that upon those two commandments hung the entire Old Testament, Old Covenant law. And that was the framework that our audience was steeped in. And our author is making abundantly clear that Jesus is not abolishing the law, but is fulfilling it and has given us a new framework to work in. 
So we are not to be led astray by diverse and strange teachings, whether about food or anything else. We take our teachings from the pages of Scripture and those who would preach and teach it faithfully. We are to be strengthened by the grace that comes from knowing and trusting in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We are to go to Jesus outside of the camp, meaning being willing to go to Jesus even if it takes us outside of the fold of the people that we are comfortable with. Go to Jesus outside of the camp even if that means going to him when everyone else around us is telling us to stay in our own little area and not be afraid of being set apart, different from everyone else, willing to do so, even if that means bearing the reproach that comes from faithful identification with Christ. And then we are to faithfully discharge our duties as a Christian, acknowledging our Savior before all mankind in whatever situation. And then wherever you go, seek to do good by living in accordance with the commands of Scripture. And that's going to be wildly problematic in our world because the world's definition of good and our definition of good is completely different. What the world calls good, we can look in the pages of Scripture and obviously call evil. So we pursue good, and in our eyes, that should be something that's celebrated and our world will hate us for it. And that's okay. And then we share what we have. I was interested when I was reading that share what we have, the first thing that comes to mind is, okay, I'm, whatever God gives me. God gives me money. I make sure that I'm using that money not only to care for my family, but also to care for the people around me. God gives me an abundance of food. Okay, well, I... I have a ton of produce in my garden. Maybe I can find some way to share it. Or I, God grants that I get a whole bunch of animals in hunting season, and I can share that with people. But sharing what we have, there's the physical side of it, sharing our time and our energy and our resources. But we also remember that what we have primarily is not physical. When we share what we have, we share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We share what we have by taking the time to share the gospel, taking the time to let others know what it means to follow Jesus and to pray for them. Whenever we have the opportunity, we must share what we have. And in doing these things, if we continue to acknowledge God before men, to obey his commandments in Scripture, to believe in him in our hearts, and to act as ones who do so, caring for and loving both God and our neighbors, then we will bring glory to God. How do we do so? By keeping our eyes fixed firmly upon Jesus Christ and pursuing him in whatever we do. To God be the glory. With that, I'll ask that the worship team would come and bring a closing song, and then we'll join together in prayer.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for this church. I pray that we would not be led away by teachings that are contrary to the commandments that we find in Scripture. That you would protect us from the wolves in sheep's clothing who would seek to appear righteous but bring division and bring contrary views to your word. And may we refute false teaching at every opportunity that we are given. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your son, Jesus Christ, that you have sent him as our priest, as the sacrifice necessary to cleanse us of our sins, as our only source of righteousness. And we pray that we would seek to live in such a way that recognizes that we have been bought with a price. That we would not hesitate to run to Jesus outside of the camp. That we would not be focused on our own comfort and our own palatability to the world, but that we would seek to be outright distasteful to the world in our love for you. And that as we do so, some might be awakened by your Holy Spirit to the truth of the message that we bring. Lord, may we offer up our sacrifices to you. That we might acknowledge you in all things, at all times, before all men. that we would not neglect to do good and that we would share what we have and that our sacrifices would be pleasing to you, both individually as individual Christians and corporately as Elk Point Baptist Church. We pray that our sacrifices would be pleasing to you and done out of a heart that is grateful for what you have done and that desires only to worship you, that our sacrifices would not be done for our own glory, but that it would be done for your glory. Lord, I commit this church into your care, knowing that you love them far more than I could. And we ask that we would follow you wholeheartedly. And we thank you for giving us your word to encourage us and equip us in the pursuit of righteousness in the pursuit of your glory. Lord, we thank you for these things and for each one who has joined with us this morning. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.